0: Kia ora, I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Our guest today is Helen Clark. Um, now, Helen doesn't really need an introduction. She's a national and indeed global icon. Uh, she entered parliament in 1981, was prime minister from 1999 to 2008, the first Labour leader to win three consecutive elections. She was then administrator of the United Nations Development Programme from 2009 to 2017, and her bid for UN Secretary-General was documented in the award-winning film My Year with Helen. Helen is now a global activist, role model national treasure, though I'm not sure she'd relish that term, and a social media star. Um, And she is just releasing her book, Women, Equality and Power. Helen, it's a pleasure to host you here at the High Commission. Thank you. Uh, So first of all, I'd like to start big, if we can, with the world, with global politics. Uh, We're meeting a month out from the UN General Assembly, and shortly after the death of Kofi Annan, a self-described stubborn optimist. Uh, Now, you gave a speech at the Oxford Union in 2007 outlining the tenets of New Zealand foreign policy, so a focus on multilateralism and the rules-based order, free trade, human rights, peace and security, interfaith dialogue. More than 10 years on, how are we in the international order doing? Do you think the overall trajectory is positive or negative?
1: It's a story of several parts, isn't it? Because you can take the technocratic view of development and say there are fewer very poor people, uh, more children are in school, more people have access to health services and so on. And these are good things, but they're also fragile gains Mm. uh, for the poorest people because uh, anything that goes off course can uh, severely erode the tenuous... Uh, place they have on on the rung of the ladder that they're they're on. So vulnerable to poverty is a very important uh, uh, concept. Vulnerable employment, which can come or go, and and uh, leave you with no no livelihood. The threat of climate change to those trying to subsist or those who dwell around the big river deltas or the coastlines is, is clearly uh, huge, the threat of more intense and more frequent droughts, even than those which cause misery in the Sahel and the Horn of Africa today. And then there's these conflicts that just go on and on and on and can take uh, countries where people were climbing the human development ladder, like Syria, uh, can take them back into the most abject poverty and despair and fleeing their homes and over borders and, 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 and then all the spillover effects we saw to Europe in 2015. So, yes, two parts. We'd like to be able to accentuate the good parts and we'd like leaders to focus on really what needs to be done to get the good trends overwhelming these, these negative ones we're seeing.
0: And what do you think we can do within the international order to nudge things in the right direction?
1: The power of voice is very important, uh, particularly for the small countries who don't really have a a lot of money uh, just by scale. New Zealand is never going to be a major aid donor, but it it can do do good work with what it has. It can do good work as a a good citizen uh, in how it meets up to the... Requirements of the Paris Agreement, for example. I think New Zealand must embrace the sustainable development agenda and have a a program for that which it hasn't had uh, to date. But every opportunity that presents itself, we should be a voice for collaboration, for multilateralism, for sorting out your differences. Jaw Jaw is always better than uh, war war. And we we should stand for for people's rights and voice and freedom of expression and things that in the end are built in stabilizers and society. And stop the tip over into conflict.
0: Absolutely, it's really interesting, and I think it's the prime minister of Tuvalu says, if you save Tuvalu, you save the world. Talking about that, the Pacific and this region being on the front line in terms of climate change.
1: So Tuvalu is like the Canary in the mine. If it goes under, then we are, you know, at, yeah. at, at, at that tipping point. That. 2 degree temperature rise, which we were always told was the irreversible and catastrophic uh, level of temperature rise, uh, which would uh, affect us in really immeasurable ways. And uh, some reports suggest we only have a 5% chance of avoiding that future.
0: And so it's a matter of urgency. And, and I think part of the challenge is climate change is not something that really gets the adrenaline going in the same way that conflict or terrorism do. And so we really need to collectively to keep up the pressure and keep up the pace of work.
1: I think it's been like a, a, a slow motion train wreck. Yeah. You know, we see it coming along, but we don't see enough of the impact to say it's a crisis. Until I think we start to reflect on the number of climate-related disasters that we're now seeing. Look, you look at New Zealand agriculture. I grew up on a farm. Uh, Yes, we had the odd year of extreme weather, but these extremes seem to be much more frequent. And for a country which has such a big primary production base from the land... Uh, this matters. But how much more it matters if you're trying to eke out an existence in the Sahel. If the one in 100 year drought is coming every three or four years, you are stripped out far more often than you can ever build resilience to.
0: And I think that you know, I think what you say about the patterns that you're seeing in New Zealand is also slowly translating into a great, far greater acceptance of the challenge, a bipartisan approach to climate change, and also acceptance by the farming industry of, of the need to adapt. I think the bipartisan approach is
1: extremely important, and I think in New Zealand we're starting to get there, we're starting to see... Everyone move, not yet in Australia. In the United Kingdom, it's been bipartisan for, for years, which is fantastic. Not yet in the United States. Uh, uh, continental Europe, the, the, the Western European countries for the most part, yes, but Eastern Europe, Central Europe, where there's been a big reliance on coal, still very controversial. Uh, but we do need all industrialised countries to, to move on this because... Uh, The poorest can't uh, make the changes required. We have to make them, and China has to make them, and India has to make them. Uh, Every emerging economy has to make them.
0: Absolutely. Helen, you travel a lot. I've called you a global citizen, and I think, I think that's probably an accurate description. And you travel a lot also to the UK. You went to the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in April, which, of course, had a big focus on oceans and climate change. And you're travelling again to the UK in October for the International Wildlife Trade Conference that's being hosted by the UK. Can you talk a bit about why this is a priority for you and, and what you think we can achieve So
1: London hosted uh, a very major conference on wildlife, which I went to as UNDP administrator, and uh, I've always had an interest in in wildlife, uh, and I've, you know... Throughout my life, some of the highlights have been going to Africa and the national parks and seeing the wildlife. And so, anything that is a is a threat to the survival of iconic species and rare species will will get my interest. I recall preparing for that first London conference, and UNDP you know prepared some briefing notes, and they they talked about an unprecedented crisis. So when I see such language, I always say, well, uh, what's the facts? Tell me why it's unprecedented. Well, because they persuaded me that it was. Uh, And things have gone a bit in cycles. There was a a major uh, poaching and trafficking crisis uh, earlier in the century. Then it dissipated a little bit. But then it's come back with a vengeance. And and a number of things are are behind that. Uh, Actually, Uh, the consuming power in China, a traditional uh, consumer of elephant ivory and uh, the products related to the poor rhino, uh, that purchasing power is much bigger. And that's why it's been so vital that China has moved to the ivory ban, because if you can stop it in China and if China can police it on its borders so that they don't become porous points, uh, that that is phenomenal. So... I, in the years at UNDP, used to go uh, to see initiatives where UNDP would have a multidimensional approach recognising that you will never stop poaching if the act of poaching an elephant or a rhino earns you more than a year of toil in a dusty subsistence plot. You have to deal with rural poverty. You have to give the local people a stake in a growing tourism industry. And how often do we drive to a national park in Africa, and we drive past people living in abject conditions to our luxury lodge, not on. People have to be cut into the story. Uh, Now, if you can start to address the rural poverty, um, then you've got a chance of uh, nipping it in the bud, but you have to deal with corruption and rule of law. There are corrupt judges, there are corrupt uh, immigration and trade uh, officials, there are uh, corrupt police. uh, There are many people who are part of the chain of the, the wildlife tragedy. And then at the consuming end, the UK's moved on the ivory ban, which is fantastic. New Zealand needs to, Australia needs to. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese have, which is just incredible good news. But we need a huge effort, a multidimensional effort that, that's going to address the issue.
0: Yeah, it absolutely needs that multi-pronged approach. And also, as you say, cultural change around the world. And that leads me to a question that I had around the power of... Thought leadership and social media, because you really are—you're a social media star globally, active on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on um, Instagram. Can you talk a bit about how you see social media, both as a force for good, but also, of course, the pitfalls?
1: So, like all uh, you know, new developments, it, it it hits us a bit unawares, and I think we we take a time to work out its upsides, its downsides, how it can be constructively used. With traditional media, uh, many Western societies, including this one, and I'm sure the UK, uh, have their regulatory mechanisms. We have a statutory regulator here on broadcasting, where if you have a complaint, that body uh, is empowered to investigate your complaint and make a ruling and uh, make whatever uh, requirements are required of the, the offender. Uh, similarly, we have a press council which deals with our print media, but social media has been an unregulated space, and so it, it has flowered in the whole range of opinion. And frankly, I do think Facebook and Twitter have been too slow to close down hate speech, uh, manipulation of democratic uh, processes. Uh, there's some real poison out there that has, has had uh, uh, platforms... But, of course, where, where I'm mostly focused is on the good side of it, the advocacy side for public good. You can advocate for open government and space and voice. You can pick up cases of human rights abuse and draw global attention to it and put pressure on those who are perpetrating those. You can draw attention to the positive things that could be done for wildlife conservation or the empowerment of women or... Poverty eradication or climate action, there's a lot of good things and one's always inspired by how many groups around the world are working in these areas.
0: I Want to talk now a bit about the UK and New Zealand relationship. Um, you obviously travel to the UK a lot, um, and you know one of my uh, priorities as a High Commissioner to New Zealand is to future-proof the relationship because, of course, we've got strong historical links. Lots of New Zealanders trace their roots back to the UK, but that won't always be the case. So, and one of the things that we do a lot is share um, our learnings on social policy and our innovations. I wonder if you can. Talk a bit about what you think we need to do to future-proof that relationship. I've
1: been visiting the UK for 42 years. I first went in 1976 and stayed in Mecklenburg Square in William and Enough House, and I had a, a, a scholarship from New Zealand, and that's the first time I, I travelled around and, and got to see where some of my forebears had come from, from the Shetland Islands uh, uh, through to... Um, uh, Yorkshire, uh, Oxfordshire, etc. And others came from Wales and the Scottish Islands and heaven knows where. So uh, every, every family branch of mine leads back to yeah. the UK. Uh, so of course I have a great affinity for the country and I'm well aware that our constitutional settlement is is, is basically you know, built on the, uh, the Bill of Rights and Magna Carta and the Westminster parliamentary model and uh, And so on. So there's just so much there that is that is shared. Uh, But I also see today young people who don't have the closeness of immediate family that I had, because I did have two grandfathers born in the British Isles. By the time you get to my nieces and nephews and their children, it becomes more distant. But still, the young ones want to go to London. And where would London offices, restaurants, whatever, be without that endless pool of young Kiwis and Aussies (laughs) on their working holidays? And all I can say to the UK is just keep keep that door open for the working holidays because that is so influential in in keeping uh, the links. And you probably will get a bit of a retro revival interest again in where people's roots are because people do want to follow their roots.
0: Um, And, of course, this year we're celebrating 125 years of women's suffrage in New Zealand and 100 years in the UK. We're not bitter that you pipped us to it by such a margin. Um, And we've got a female prime minister in the UK and new zealand but still so much to do and i think just seven percent of um heads of state and government globally are women um So you're about to launch your book, Women, Equality, Power, which is a selection of speeches from a life of leadership. Um, And it's been described as a celebration of an outstanding leader who continues to strive and work for change. And it's a rallying call for other women leaders, whether they're in positions of political, economic or social power. Uh, Now, I can't wait to read it, but I wonder if you can give us a sneak preview and tell us what you think we need to do to get more women into leadership.
1: Well, the book was an initiative from Alan and Unwin, the publisher. They approached me and I said, oh, would anyone want to read them? And they said, oh, yes, we think there'd be an audience. And, well, so it proved because the first edition's all out quickly and they're frantically reprinting for uh, book signings next week. Uh, But they have made the selection that goes from my maiden speech in Parliament in April 1982 uh, through to the lecture I gave on women's leadership and crashing through glass ceilings at the Asian Development Bank in Manila in March uh, this this year. So there's a lot of speeches on a on a, a lot of issues. But uh, I hope that, you know, those who read it will think, well, that could be me, that could be my daughter, you know, that could be someone, I, a woman I see of you know, talent and ambition in, in the community. Let, let's get in behind and get more women into these positions of leadership. Uh, I think in New Zealand, we've, we're not doing too badly at the leadership level, obviously, with women prime ministers for more than half the last 21 years. That's yes. that's, that's not bad. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't a one-off wonder. Jenny Shipley yeah. preceded me wasn't a one-off wonder. Jacinda definitely won't be a one-off wonder. We can probably expect in the normal course of events that Women will lead half the time and we have to work for that. The parliament's close to 40% female. I think that with goodwill from political parties we could reach gender parity in two to three elections and that should be the goal. Maybe the 2030 agenda should be uh, the the date we set for for that. But I obviously know there's still a pay gap to be addressed. It's 9.2%, not what it was, but it's still there. Uh, And it will partly be addressed by men taking on life patterns which are more similar to that of women and take their share of the unpaid work that every family has to do with children and and other relatives who have have needs. And then I am very vocal about the level of uh, domestic and family violence in New Zealand, which is shameful and deemed to be the worst in the OECD and it it needs a a bipartisan, consistent and determined effort Mm -hmm. to address what is driving it and put in place the services that can stop it.
0: To finish off, thank you so much for your time. I want to ask two more personal questions. So the first um, is, you know, I would say you're a role model for thousands of people around the world, and you come across as a formidable force, if I might say. You're driven, you're Mm -hmm. self-assured. And so I wanted to ask you... Is there anything that makes you nervous?
1: Well, what what has made me nervous is uh, when I've agreed to go to places, uh, either as UNDP administrator or Prime Minister before that, and you're in, say, the, the helicopter that's just skirting over the top of the date palms in Basra, and you're looking down and you're thinking, this country's just been through a major convulsion uh, and not everyone's happy about where it is at the moment, and we're quite close to a ground-to-air missile possibility. I felt the same flying uh, from Kabul to to Barmian province and back to Bagram Air Base. I felt the same when I got in a... Uh, an armoured vehicle in Mogadishu uh, two years ago to go from the airport, which most people don't leave, into Villa Somalia and Villa Hargeza, the, the government of parliamentary buildings. And you think, why did I agree to do this? <laughs> it's a war zone out there. But anyway, uh, uh, having agreed to do it, there, there's no turning back. Who, who said that? There's no turning back. You're committed. You, yeah. You're going to go there. And you just have have to hope the security people did their
0: job. Wow, I think that would make anyone nervous. <laughs> Quite frankly. And, and finally, I wonder if I can ask you you know, you've had an incredibly successful career and s- still so much to, to contribute globally. But I wonder if you can think back to your 20, 20 year old self. What advice would you give yourself?
1: Well, I probably would have, in retrospect, say be more ambitious because. At 20, uh, I probably envisaged uh, being a teacher like my mother. I never, never dreamed of public life because there just weren't the role models for that. The women uh, who had made it all the way into parliament—they uh, they were so rare and, and so few in number that you, you didn't even think of that as a as a career choice. So it wasn't till I really got into my stride uh, at the university and and the political issues affecting young people that I started to see actually there was a a career path there. I I don't think a 20-year-old today would have... You know, that really lack of awareness of what you could do because they've seen women go all the way and, and be uh, top top operators in decision-making. But, if, yeah, looking back, I would say just lean in, go with it, you know, and, and, and don't aim too low, aim for the top.
0: Well, Helen Clark, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakitiano.